I'm Isabel Mitozu, Assistant Professor of Political Communication at Federal University of Maranhão in Brazil, and in partnership with Alex Pryor, Lecturer in Politics at the University of East Anglia in the UK, I'll produce the podcast Democratic Engagement today. In the current context of COVID-19, we plan to hold a series of conversations with academics worldwide and discuss various responses to the pandemic and how this might impact on politics and democracy. Yes, and the uh, key questions that we're going to be addressing include uh, what are the challenges in each country, uh, what seem to be the consequences at this time of those, uh, and also what are the key issues facing each country during this pandemic uh, beyond uh, purely medical concerns. Uh, and uh, social scientists in Brazil, the UK and other overseas institutions will be discussing these problems, the proposed solutions, uh, and also the state of politics and democracy as we understand it. How are you doing, Alex? Uh, I'm very well. Uh, good to speak to you again. The weather in the UK has definitely improved uh, recently, so I've been outside enjoying that as much as I can. Uh, but uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm well. How are you doing? That's perfect. I'm doing well. Here, you know, in Brazil, the weather in the northeast of Brazil, the weather is always sunny, very warm. I cannot complain about that. And sometimes That's I complain, good. but... It's oh, it's okay. Complain. <laughs> we certainly always complain over here, whether it's too hot, too cold, too not hot or cold. You know, it's it's fine. I think that's understandable. So I was very curious to hear from you about the current situation in the UK, specifically because we were surprised by the news about uh, the return of MPs to the House of Parliament. So first of all, Boris Johnson released the campaign "Stay Alert." And now he calls all the MPs to come back to, to the parliament, you know, in person. And I'm very curious to know what do you think? How are you seeing this situation in face of you have more than 600 parliamentarians. And if you obey the social distancing policies, it's going to be complicated in a very tiny place like the House of Commons. Well, yeah, I mean, even in uh, regular circumstances, uh, there aren't enough seats, for example, in the Commons Chamber. So it's, yes. uh, it's very much a kind of intensification of problems that were in a certain way designed into the building for, you know, very different reasons and under a particularly different context, obviously. Uh, but, um, I mean, well, let's take the stay alert uh, tagline first, which is, I think, By and large, I think has just resulted in um, a certain amount of kind of dumbfounded, uh, just kind of confusion. Really, it's it's one of those things that I think is meant to be a very kind of general statement that's widely applicable, um, but instead it's kind of had the opposite effect of I think just seeming like a kind of um, a sort of vapid and kind of and content-free uh, statement. Staying alert doesn't really give any particular guide something like stay at home for example that has a kind of clear direction behind it and it's clear what's meant to be done as a result if you're actually following that guidance whereas something like stay alert what did it, i think um in northern ireland for example there was some degree of guffawing in response to something like that and also um kind of yeah incredulity about um i remember one comment like uh, you know covid isn't a it isn't a burglar you know it's not a matter of of course it's a matter of staying alert but um that by itself is not going to change anything or solve anything um i believe uh, nicola sturgeon was on record saying i don't really know what stay alert means in this particular context and has been at pains to give more direct guidance clearer guidance I think it dovetails with this idea of bringing all the MPs back into this idea that um, we seem to not be putting across a particularly efficient model of uh, response and public policy at the moment. And it's, to put it informally, it's kind of vaguely embarrassing, I think. I was um, looking at uh, Ruth Fox's, um, the director of the uh, Hansard Society, her comments on um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, statements about bringing MPs back and sort of ending a very, very short period of virtual parliament, something that I think, you know, it's is maybe a source of pride. I, by that, I mean the virtual parliament, not sort of bringing MPs back. But it's this kind of image that people are talking about of kind of uh, enormous kind of queues for voting, that kind of thing, uh, that I think is just going to 
it doesn't, I think, speak to the strengths of the UK Parliament. The UK Parliament is simultaneously a kind of democratic chamber. It's a working institution. It's a historical uh, monument in some in some respects. And I think you know it does have to be understood symbolically. And if if Parliament doesn't seem to have a good sort of working uh, response to something like COVID, then I think it sends sort of a very poor message on an international scale because obviously. Obviously, overseas, it's under intense scrutiny as an exemplar um, of how major institutions are coping and adapting. But I think just on a kind of symbolic level in terms of international relations, in terms of sort of international reputation, I, I find it vaguely ridiculous. And I'm really trying hard to find a kind of justification for it based on the conversations, for example, that we had with um, Nicole Carato recently over in Canberra about the importance of you know, making use of these digital technologies. I was having a sort of closer read through of uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's comments, and there was a very, I think, a very sort of telling comment, which was, you know, politics is done better face to face. Um, you know, when you can see the sort of whites of the minister's eyes, even if that's from kind of six, uh, six sort of meters away, six feet away. And I just thought that that was a very kind of telling statement about the prioritization of politics over democracy, which is something that um, Ruth Fox, I think, kind of picked up on uh, when she was commenting on it as well. And also this idea of, you know, what is better in this situation? What, what do we even sort of mean by better? Does better mean just, uh, you know, kind of being in close proximity to people, um, mm -hmm. having the theatre that we're used to of um, PMQs, uh, PMQs, which has, I think, sort of changed in a very kind of material, qualitative sense, um, now that it's sort of being conducted according to social uh, distancing uh, rules. I think the whole, I mean, Christina uh, will have her own thoughts on this, but I think the whole texture, the whole kind of feel of PMQs has really, has really changed, and certain things that people are normally able to rely on in terms of sort of groundswell of support from the backbenches, for example, uh, and no longer there and I think sort of answers and responses that are free of content uh, and actual sort of material are much more kind of starkly laid bare um, when they're in PMQs uh, nowadays. I, from my perspective, have seen that quite, quite clearly in the exchanges between um, uh, Keir Starmer uh, and, uh, and Boris Johnson. So I think it just sends a very clear message. And the problem is that the very clear message is a bad message, I think, about how institutions should be, how they should be working and how they're seen to be working as well. They're meant to be exemplars of how workspaces can respond. And I think that this is just a kind of backward retrograde step that, again, as, um, as Ruth Fox uh, has argued, is a political decision rather than a democratic decision. And I think that's a really, really key distinction. If I can just um, take a moment to quote from uh, what, uh, what Dr. Fox has actually said on this matter, as you mentioned, that remote participation across a range of proceedings in the chamber and select committees, plus remote voting, has been delivered at speed and scale. What staff at Westminster have delivered surpasses what many other legislatures have achieved so far in this crisis. But the government's plans now risk turning the House of Commons from a global parliamentary leader into an international laughingstock. I think that that kind of says it all I'm absolutely in complete agreement in terms of whether it's practicable in terms of the same kind of scrutiny that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been talking about as a priority and just how it looks, what it looks like as a message. I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen but i think it's a very irresponsible step i mean sort of i'd be i'd be grateful for your thoughts on the matter as well as i saw a tweet of yours about it so you clearly have yeah. a position too. for me it's very curious but you know in 2016 i was there in the uk i made some interviews with some consultants some officials and one mp meg hillier and I remember how difficult it was at that time for MPs to accept, for example, online voting like something real and something that could work for the House of Commons, for the Parliament in general. So I was really surprised when I saw the online voting happening for the first time in about 800 years of UK Parliament. So I thought it wouldn't be easier, but I thought it wouldn't be easy because of parliamentarians and not because of the government. And because what I see from here is that many parliamentarians are not, uh, they think that's not a good step to take now. 
coming back to the Houses of Parliament because of uh, the medical concerns about taking everybody uh, together in that place. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's also symbolic of what a lot of professionals and, uh, and medical experts have described as, I think, a kind of too enthusiastic and sudden scaling back of uh, lockdown before the situation is, from a certain perspective, kind of fully under control. I think it kind of speaks to perhaps a kind of tendency to open things up again, perhaps kind of too quickly uh, before before the scale of casualties and deaths and cases is, um, you know, under a more kind of uh, manageable uh, position, or at least, uh, for example, track and tracing being at a more being more expanded, being at a more kind of uh, serviceable level. I think we've had sort of assurances that will be ready uh, or sort of fully operational by the end of this month, but obviously um, relaxations already being set in so there's perhaps a there's perhaps a mishma- uh, mismatch uh, between those two developments uh, but um yeah yes. i mean I, I i agree completely and i absolutely yeah i think that that's right in terms of what traditionally is quite a slow take up of technology by parliament i mean i would say that once the technology is taken up usually it it's it's kind of kept and albeit slowly it's kind of developed and so it has more sophistication added to it. Christina, I'm, I'm sure, will sort of be able to comment on this in the context of e-petitions, for example. But um, uh, yeah, I think it's definitely true to say that as to new technologies have developed, Parliament has usually sort of taken quite a long time to adopt it. Um, even going back to sort of early mid 20th century with uh, television broadcasting, radio, all that kind of thing, there's always a kind of sizable gap, and there are all kinds of discussions and digressions we could make, I suppose, with respect to uh, political engagement and uh, transparency and participation and so on and so forth. But um, I think it's unusual, from from my point of view at least, it's unusual to see a take-up of technology that's then dumped quite quickly again before its, before its usefulness has expended itself. And I, I, I was under the impression, and it was my opinion, that uh, a kind of virtual element to parliamentary meetings, for example, isn't necessarily relevant only to a global pandemic. It's something that couldn't be used and sort of made to work in harmony um, yes. with those traditional elements of parliamentary activity that, you know, from a symbolic point of view, from a historical point of view, from a cultural point of view, it's all worth the uh, Worth sort of preserving and uh, and remembering. So I, I honestly can't see the function of it from a from a symbolic or a practical point of view. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of confusion around it and a lot of doubting of the sort of as it were logic of the decision. Uh, and I think, from my viewpoint, at least a lot of international derision of the decision. Both of the stay alert message that you mentioned earlier and this very quick. Uh, sort of return or plans for return or advocation of return uh, back into the chamber. Yes, yes. The structure of parliaments, the traditional structure of all parliaments uh, around the world does not allow them to apply in a very fast or in a constant way, in a constant basis, uh, the use of digital mechanisms for for the daily work of the parliament. So. Yeah, it's it's we have a lot to discuss about that. And I mean, when we are researching on this topic, and I don't need yeah. to tell you that I'm very happy when I can see some movements uh, for the better development of mechanisms, online mechanisms for parliamentary work processes and procedures. You know, but we still have to pass through a lot, you know, we have to develop a culture, a new culture of what work is. Because, as I said in my own my tweet, I think parliaments think that parliamentarians are only working if they are there into the parliament, if they discuss face-to-face. And we have to see the benefits of discussing uh, through online tools. That is not every time a bad thing, like we are doing right now. We are being mediated by a digital tool, and it's not bad at all. So, but parliaments sometimes have to. It's a slow process until MPs and, I mean, all all the body inside a parliament to understand that we have to develop a new culture, 
to really implement digital mechanisms in the daily procedures. I think you're absolutely right in terms of it being a culture, and I think slowness is a problem in a kind of context. Um, I also think perhaps even more of a problem is not so much slowness, but the kind of retrograde steps that we sometimes see in terms of, you know, um, some excellent work in terms of uh, virtual parliamentary activity. But you're right that there's a there's a cultural element to this as well, and I think there's sometimes an assumption that um, that uh, virtual process and in in-person process or physical process somehow kind of anti uh, antagonistic towards each other or sort of represent uh, a different kind of uh, spirit or ethos of um, yes. of work and you're right in saying that i think that there's a kind of traditional view of you know if you're at work you're working and if you're not at work you're not working uh, and i think again just to kind of re-return to that statement of politics is uh, is always sort of done better when it's face to face um firstly i don't think that's true at all i don't think that's true in terms of how um how functionality works but also i think it clings to a very sort of outmoded model of what politics is as well i think sort of you and i have perhaps an idea of politics that is absolutely uh, absolutely has a kind of harmony with new sort of digital technologies and you know it's really exciting time for digital politics and digital communications I think it reveals what how many different understandings of something like politics uh, there are and whether uh, parliament is taken uh, a parliament or the UK parliament is taken to be a, a political institution or a democratic institution or with it being both whether one is sort of prioritized very much above the other and I think on both sides of the argument uh, there is an implication that politics is being prioritized here. I think it's very much a kind of giveaway when uh, politics and parliament are described and sort of talked about in those terms in terms of really sort of requiring that physical presence. I think sort of elements of that are true in some contexts, but I think as a general rule, uh, it's just not the way that politics and democracy and even workplaces are, are going. And I think that that's a good thing, that that's not the direction that it's going. Today we receive Cristina Leston Bandeira. She's professor of politics at the University of Leeds. She works on parliament and public engagement, having worked on parliaments for over 20 years. She's co-director of the Center for Democratic Engagement and chair of the UK Study of Parliament Group. And she's also co-editor of the journal Parliamentary Affairs and a Constitution Unit Fellow. Thank you, Christina, for accepting our invitation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so today we will talk a bit about how parliaments are working in this time of pandemic in view of their use of digital technologies for, for this work. So you've been uh, writing and researching on the functions of parliaments about for about 10 years now. So how do you think the functions of parliament have changed since the adoption of digital mechanisms for running their work? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think parliaments have gone uh, to the essentials of what they can do. They've gone back to basics. So some of them have got to emergency sort of stuff of status uh, rather than functioning properly, functioning normally, sorry. And so they've had to, to prioritize and choose what they do you know what they actually need to do the most so most parliaments have actually focused on scrutiny after establishing a few basic elements such as passing emergency legislation so there is a little bit of legislative process there as the basics so a lot of parliaments have had to pass legislation to enable the government to do a number of things to deal with the pandemic but really the core activity has been around scrutiny and scrutinizing what how the governments have been responding to the pandemic being that in some parliaments uh, that's happened much less so i'm sure you've heard the case of hungary where they actually passed a law to basically let the government do whatever the government wants to do and the parliament has gone to a very sort of minor type of role of scrutiny however something that's been interesting has been in systems like the uk where as you know the constituency mp link is very strong and where people uh, reach out to the mps on a regular basis one thing that's been sort of interesting has been to actually see 
that representation role, representation function also being very strong in that in here, work sort of what we call casework. So casework is work based on the constituency um, that people send to the MPs. That's increased by threefold more or less. So it's increased far more than usual. Um, another interesting element from that is, for instance, the Petitions Committee, which, as you know, I've worked quite, quite a bit on recently. They've had an increase of submission of petitions, again, by three times since since March, since the lockdown has started. Because, obviously, the lockdown, the pandemic, is affecting all aspects of society. It's affecting, it's not just health, it's also economy, uh, education, all sorts of things. And so when there's lots of problems in society, that ends up in Parliament. So although in terms of the activity, it's been mainly about scrutiny, once the key legislation has been passed, um, that representation role has been also very clear in terms of the need of someone putting forward the, what's happening in the country and putting forward the difficulties that that's causing to, to people. I was just going to say that has varied a lot between country to country, because many parliaments, there's so much variety in terms of how parliaments have dealt with the pandemic. And some parliaments, like, for instance, the parliament in Ireland, still says that they can't meet physically or in any form because the constitution says that they need to be gathered together in a place. And there's actually been some controversy about that saying well that's just a very limited interpretation of the constitution but for instance also in New Zealand it's sort of gone back to just COVID-19 and having a committed couple of COVID-19 so there's been lots of different ways parliaments have have reacted but I, I'd say the core role has been of, of scrutiny. It's interesting that you call about some parliaments in the Commonwealth because they are very close or they have their structures based on the UK parliament ones. And what do you think are the main barriers for these countries in the Commonwealth model of parliament to use digital mechanisms for running their work and changing the constitution, you know, making, making amendments to, to let this, to institutionalize these practices, at least in this moment? Well, one thing that's been really interesting in the UK is how, so the, the Westminster model, um, as you know, and Westminster system is based on centuries of practices and traditions and standing orders, which I interpret in a particular way and all of that. Um, there's lots of things that that parliament doesn't do because it's just not the thing done because it's never been done and all of that. Uh, but what's interesting with what's happened recently is that you've seen some of those arguments fall completely through in the in the uh, in face of the need of need of doing something so in all these webinars that i've been doing one thing that i always like to point out is that the the current use of digital whether it's by parliaments or companies or universities or whatever it is it's not it shouldn't be seen just from the angle of digital because i don't think it is it's also a situation of crisis And it might be that it has shown a lot of people, organizations, institutions about the potential of digital, what digital can do, but that doesn't mean that they have institutionalized those practices or that they have adopted those practices. So I think it's important to differentiate the two of them. And what ha what's happening today in the UK Parliament, today as in today, through the 2nd of June, uh, is really interesting because despite a lot of opposition to electronic voting, which a lot of parliaments have, so for years people have suggested, why don't you have electronic voting? Um, MPs from Scotland in, in particular have asked for that because the Scottish Parliament has electronic voting, etc. And we've always, always been told, no, it can't be done and won't be done and all of that. And in the hybrid proceedings of parliament that we've had for the last few weeks, um, they did develop a way of voting online using a digital ap application that Parliament has, which is called the Members Hub, which is used to submit questions and that sort of thing. And that was adapted for MPs to be able to vote. But obviously, a lot of very traditional MPs didn't particularly like that. There was lots of issues about whether that could be used for legislation, etc. And then the government has decided, right, we're not having a virtual Parliament anymore, we're going back to proceedings face-to-face. -face. And so today, because... 
as I'm sure you know, MPs in the UK Parliament, they still vote uh, by embodiment, basically, by person. They have to walk through a lobby. And so to do that with social distancing, there's lots of photos on Twitter. You just need to go on Twitter and, and look at it. There's lots of photos of these MPs uh, queuing for metres and metres and metres away from the chamber to try to... And, and that just shows you that it's not necessarily about digital. It's about convenience, about crisis. There was a crisis, needed a solution. Solutions actually was quite good. A lot of people thought it was good, but it doesn't mean it's been accepted as something to, to bring. So it's important to differentiate uh, that. On the, on the other side of that, you do see parliaments such as the Brazilian Congress, which has institutionalized digital for a long time, who was and is much more advanced in the use of digital for lots of things. Um, they were, of course, amongst the first ones to move to do their deliberations online um, because they have the infrastructure. They've got the, 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 the systems there. They, they Even if MPs didn't necessarily know a lot about them, they are there and it's just a question of, of, of using them and becoming more familiar, familiarised, but a lot of them already knew about them anyway. Obviously, it matters, you know, to what extent they've moved, but quite often it's much more about the need, isn't it, about what are the motivations to use these things. And some things, I think, will, will stay. So some things in all of these parliaments or universities, organisations, whatever it is, because it affects all society, doesn't it? Some of these yeah. changes will, will stay there. One of the things that's been interesting to see in the UK Parliament has been committees using oral evidence, virtual evidence, a lot to bring in people from lots of different places across the country and if some people might usually not be comfortable enough or or not able to go because they're from i don't know newcastle they've got small children they can't go whole day to london they've actually been using virtual witnesses evidence far more and i suspect that some of that actually will stay that committees will be more imaginative in thinking okay so and so is i don't know in germany or in in the shetlands island but actually if they have an internet connection we can still hear from them and it won't be such a massive headache as it's been recently i was talking to cristiani Bernardes last week about the brazilian case and how it's and people always ask ask us about how brazil is seen from the outside and we always tell that the point is uh, we have had a lot of uh, institutionalization of the use of digital technology into the parliament. But I think the, the, the innovation now in the middle of this crisis is that we always made uh, officials, consultants to use these mechanisms and not the parliamentarians themselves. Mm -hmm. so now mm -hmm. it's a very interesting movement that we don't see people using mechanisms for engaging with the parliament or for accessing information about the parliament, but now parliamentarians are managing these digital tools themselves at home all by themselves. So it's a very good movement to change maybe, I was talking to Alex before, a culture of using these, these tools. It's interesting. Uh, just um, if I may just uh, just kind of pick up on that theme of uh, cultures and also sort of institutionalization of practices and I suppose also how certain processes kind of look from the outside. Um, Christina, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts in a bit more sort of detail about the case of the UK and about what I think from a certain perspective could be seen as almost a kind of retrograde step in terms of returning MPs to the chamber after, on the face of it, there was some kind of quite successful work in terms of a virtual parliament or sort of hybrid body. And um, I sort of had a read through uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, sort of comments on this at the Politics uh, Home article that I think was published yesterday uh, and some of the um, critique of that that was offered by uh, Ruth Fox, just to take uh, one example. And in particular, Jacob Rees-Mogg's sort of ideas of, you know, politics is something that's done better face-to-face. Uh, -face. And I was kind of saying earlier that that perhaps is a particularly 
traditionalist or even outmoded interpretation of what politics actually is uh, with respect to uh, parliamentary process, that kind of thing. Um, from a kind of symbolic point of view as well, I was also interested in what this sends as a message in terms of these kind of long queues of MPs that would necessarily um, entail if, if that traditional model of voting was to be stuck to with kind of social distancing. So do you think that there's some kind of merit in that? Is it just a kind of a purely political decision? Sort of how, how does it um, I think it's just a political decision, to be honest. Um, it's it's down to the fact that the, the government is started thinking that they have lots of legislation they want to pass. Um, they want to carry on with their program uh, in terms of things they want to implement. They obviously, they've got also all the legislation to do with, with Brexit, etc. One of the key issues here that sounds like really led to this is the fact that the whipping system doesn't work as well. So for anyone listening from Brazil, they might not be aware what the whipping system is, but the party whip. So the party whip is about making MPs do what the parties want them to do and sort of giving instructions on how to vote, not instructions, actually telling them how to vote, how to behave in particular ways. Obviously, you, you can implement that much better if you are seeing those MPs every day or almost every day, regularly, if you can have a chat with them. So whipping, so the party whips their role, a lot of it is actually about communication. People don't realise that. It's about socialising them into the party. It's about socialising them into parliament and to things, how to do things in parliament. And so there's a very strong element of it, which is informal, which is about getting to know people, chatting to people, saying, you know, how's your family? And, oh, have you managed in, you know, how's your son feeling about, you know, not being able to do GCSEs, whatever, you know, personal, personal added anecdotes, getting to know people. And particularly if you bear in mind that the 2019 parliament is still a very new parliament, you know, the government has a majority of 80, but a lot of them are new. A lot of them, the whips don't necessarily know them that well. And even if you use WhatsApp for personal, uh, you know, private chats, all of those things we know that, that can um, nurture people getting to know each other. Um, I mean, people have their whole lives on Facebook and, and feel they know each other just from Facebook and all of that. But even with all of that, to do the party whipping, you really need that informal contact. You really need to see them in, day in, day out. And I've seen things going that way think that the whole decision of changing was on one side a lot of pressure from very traditionalist conservative MPs because they tend to be conservative the ones who, who want you know even going to a hybrid movement hybrid parliament there was a lot of resistance from those very traditional MPs and those tend to be conservatives which the government needs them on board and obviously the leader of the house is himself one of those you know one of those very traditionalists but besides that is the fact that you there, were, there was a feeling that there's this all of these MPs, particularly those you know in the north, the, the, the newly acquired seats, with who they don't have as much contact. They're getting a bit unwieldy. They're saying all sorts of different things, becoming a bit too independent. And actually, the reality is that it is much more difficult to do party whipping um, at the distance than it is if you see them day in day out. So I think it's a purely political uh, decision. It still doesn't sound very clever, though, because it still sounds so clumsy and it, it might backfire quite badly. But it, it does sound to me as a very political decision and, and as a way of keeping and having it further, more control in terms of the party group and what MPs are doing. I hope that this doesn't sound too much like a digression, but sort of what you were mentioning just now, uh, Christine, sort of things like PMQs and all, there's been a real sort of qualitative change of the, the feel of that kind of process and how certain techniques and sort of ways of communication during PMQs, um, which uh, are sort of possible and desirable when you have hundreds of people behind you kind of mm. hearing you on or punctuating certain points that you're making. Um, actually, those kind of silent spaces in between are actually... Um, perhaps to an unexpected degree, really, really influential and really sort of changing the nature of that uh, traditional kind of bear pit style of uh, PMQs as well. That was just something that... Uh, yeah, and, then, and I think that's very true. And if you think about uh, how Boris Johnson has tackled PMQs 
opposite to Keith Starmer, you know, Starmer has been much happier, much more comfortable in that environment of silence and, you know, uh, very focused questioning. Johnson, you you have is actually a few times, you know, see him looking back and thinking, where are the people, you know, shouting and supporting me? So I think, I, I mean, I don't know, but I imagine that's also another reason for wanting to go back to a more similar situation is the fact that it really doesn't suit Johnson. Johnson is all about the theatre, about the drama of politics. And in PMQs, he has struggled and Stammer has done far better than people thought uh, a leader of the opposition would do. No one was really expecting that. And I think a lot of that is, is a consequence of the current parliament, the parliament we've had until recently. Although, you know, even with bringing, uh, not having the hybrid parliament, they're not going to be able to have many people in the chamber. So that's not going to change, really. It's going to be the same limit of 50 people. But it definitely changes the environment, definitely changes the, the, the feel to it. Yeah, I'm sure that a lot of people will be thinking about that, you know, in terms of, does that change the practice of politics? For instance, it's been really interesting to watch parliamentary committees' hearings of evidence, which that in itself, I mean, committees tend to be very consensual anyway, but it's had even more of a feel of being consensual, even more feel of being about the evidence and, and focusing on, on the people giving the evidence rather than any party politics. Do you think that Part of that is just a kind of natural function of, for example, sort of online work where um, I think if there's a conversation held sort of digitally, for example, there's perhaps more expectation that sort of what you say will be quite punctuated and then you'll wait for the next input and there's not too much potential for crosstalk, for example, whereas even in a consensual um, context like a, like a committee hearing, there might still be quite a lot of that, even if it's working very well. Yes, definitely, and and the whole the whole discussion online is very different, isn't it? Yeah. But also, there's there's all sorts of difficulties. Also, you know, like sound. I just have a, a background going through, which affects, and particularly if it's a committee hearing, that sort of thing. Uh, but also, people's own internet connections and the, their ability to to communicate, and 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 with it, the frustration. I did a webinar a few weeks ago in Canada. In Canada, you know, I was here, but the webinar was managed by people in Canada, and it was interesting because it. In that webinar, there was a, a member, an MP from a region in Canada, which has really bad internet connection. And she felt disenfranchised with a virtual parliament because she just couldn't log in. She couldn't do anything. You know, so those arguments can go, can go both ways. And it definitely is a different environment. And, and I think sometimes the problem is to think, to try to do... One of the issues about a chamber, a hybrid or virtual chamber, is that people always think of trying to reproduce the same thing online. And actually, you shouldn't think in that in that way because it's not the same. We don't have the social cues that we have in, in the physical space. Um, we don't have that awareness of you know different bodies around and who's going to talk, and it's completely different. So instead of, of trying to think of reproducing the same thing, it should be thought about how can we use the online space and the online modes of communication in a way that fits the same purpose of what we do in the chamber. So, for instance, and I, I think this has been pushing too far, a virtual chamber to me would not be as we have now, people being zoomed in from everywhere. It would be an online space where people maybe can post uh, their, their comments, someone else looks at it, facilitates, pick up on different points of view. You know, it's a very different type of, of debate, but that would make the most of, there's more time available, there's more time for, for reflection also, to read through comments, to think about what to say, rather than responding straight away. But again, that would imply that we would think about how parliaments do deliberation in a completely different way, which obviously it's too much to think when we're just being reacting to a crisis. It's not, we're not changing the way of doing things. We just found a different channel to communicate, trying to do the same thing. But one of the things that the, that committees, I think, have done better is to think beyond that and think about what is it that we need here, how can we do it, and then and go that way rather than trying to reproduce exactly the format of a, a committee sitting in Parliament. Yeah, and that could be a good opportunity for committees, for example, to engage more people in their discussion because... For me, it's a perfect opportunity because you can people exactly. can access you. You can access people and hear yeah. what they think about the policies they are trying to approve. Yeah, exactly. And 
a really interesting example, as always, is the Petitions Committee in the House of Commons in the UK. They've made a fantastic use of the whole situation. They've really adapted to the current situation. So they've got, you know, as I said before, they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of petitions. <laughs> because whenever something bad happens in the country, you know, that ends up in, in MPs post back and in the petitions site. And they've done a series of inquiries, they've done web forums, they've done uh, web surveys to petitioners, and then they've used all of that to scrutinise government ministers, you know, from education to health to sort of labour type of, not labour in terms of working, pensions, that sort of thing. And they've done evidence sessions with petitioners themselves. So one of the petitions that they have is about how coronavirus has affected maternity leave, and, and the lack of support for new mums and new babies, um, you know, and all the things that new mums and new new fathers, new parents, everything they go through without having that support of people like midwives and health assistants, etc. And they had a really interesting evidence session with petitioners, but also people who signed a petition telling of their stories, telling of how they, they felt about that. And now they're using that to carry on with the inquiry into the government so that's a that's a good example of being flexible and thinking about right okay how can we be useful here how can we do what we usually do uh, in the current circumstances and maybe they would still have invited a petitioner to go down to parliament and to give evidence but this is maybe much easier to do that and besides that they brought in a, a load of other people so they brought in lots of people to bring in uh, to to give evidence to the inquiry rather than being limited to just one or two which they would usually do and i guess that's a really good kind of case in point of where you can employ technical innovation you can sort of match that match that with sort of innovation in practice as well it doesn't need to be just yeah. a replacement um as, as bella was saying um you know it, uh, it opens up new new opportunities as well and that i think um that sort of comes back to that point that um, you were making about, you know, these aren't sort of uh, socially antagonistic forces and these aren't sort of forces that are mm. sort of trying to usurp one another in terms of, uh, you know, how do we do the function? It's either in person or online. Again, back to this, politics is best done face-to-face. Uh, -face. That is how you do politics. Uh, what do you think that will be built after this this pandemic in terms of innovations, what can maybe stay into traditional parliaments like the UK? Because here in Brazil, I know we have some gains already from this, even though we have to work on social control because it, we have lost a little bit about this because of the, the use of digital mechanisms for uh, remote deliberation and voting. But in the UK, it's, it's quite a different model. So. What do you think that can remain, maybe, and be part of a new culture into the parliament after this pandemic? One of the main gains will be this, this issue of hearing from wider witnesses from further afield. I've been leading a few seminars online for the study of parliament group in the UK, and so we've had people from Canada to Jersey uh, parliament and and a lot of people seem to be saying that that one of the things that is probably going to stay is the fact that you can recall people to give evidence and so you can diversify the, the, your, the people giving evidence which is quite important quite useful because then you have a, a wider perspective of a wider range sorry of perspectives the the example of jersey is an interesting one so this is a very small parliament but i don't know if you know jersey but it's not that easy to get to really it's quite difficult to get to and so this was the clerk of the jersey parliament saying that one thing that he's sure that will happen far more is to get evidence from people uh, virtually like we're doing here now and he said that usually it's so expensive to make anyone to go down there because of the transport and hotel and all of that that they always have to think twice before taking anyone there whereas if you can bring people in you gain with that by being a, a wider range of perspectives. And the other thing that might also stay is a more predictable structure of parliamentary proceedings. So quite often in, in, in a number of parliaments, 
uh, particularly those who are more dominated by government like the UK system, you don't really know what the parliamentary business is going to be. So you're very much dependent on the government determining that. Or then, you know, things like in the UK Parliament, having the speaker, getting the eye of the speaker to, to talk. One of the things that they have done is, is introduce lists of who is going to speak in that session. And you might say, well, that takes a spontaneity of, of debate, but actually it also enables people to prepare themselves better. And if they prepare themselves better, they can do a better job. It doesn't have to be about shouting and being, you know, the loudest person to call attention. It might just be that it's their turn to talk. So there's little things like that, but I think it's more the accessing to the wider uh, range that will, will stay. A few weeks ago, I would have said also that maybe things like voting electronically will become uh, less of an issue, or at least things like voting, proxy voting. So proxy voting is when someone is ill or on maternity leave or paternity leave and can't vote. Not many parliaments have that. The UK Parliament now has that uh, temporarily. And so something like that will probably become much more natural, much more normal to, to happen without having to be paired, but just having as the right to not be there because you're ill or because oh, you've just had the baby or whatever. But I think that bringing in wider perspectives from evidence from other people, I think, will be the main win. I'm not sure, actually, with a place like Brazil, I haven't really seen that happening much in Brazil. In Brazil, the focus has been on the chamber, not necessarily on committees. So it'd be interesting to see, does it actually, I mean, I suppose in Brazil, it, ha it has changed more in terms of the members themselves. They are more involved and they're using more of the tools themselves. Um, so I th I so the, the effect will be different to different countries, won't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Here, the point is not the point is justice, making the contrary movement. Now we have to teach parliamentarians how to use these mechanisms and, and let them get a bit more uh, interested about this, these mechanisms. But we are losing in this public engagement mechanisms because the committees are not really working in this, this way, only the plenary sessions. Yes, just uh, something that just occurred to me, um, outside a little bit um, just the workings of uh, Parliament, uh, I had a kind of question or a sort of invitation for thoughts, yours as well, as well about the sort of uh, representative link between parliamentarian and uh, citizen. You know, this might be a question that's only specific for um, countries with a strong sort of constituency link. Um, but I thought at the outset of this that there might be uh, perhaps this was just pure naivety, uh, that this might be an opportunity for a greater kind of uh, equalization of that relationship and a greater sort of uh, personalization of representatives that sometimes we do have a tendency to abstract or kind of see as uh, part of a different kind of sphere of polit politicking and governance and that kind of thing. Um, even with sort of little touches like, um, you know, seeing footage of people um, providing comments on budgets or extremely important bills while clearly in their home office, you know, or sort of being interrupted by their cats or their children, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, again, this might be sort of pure naivety, but this doesn't necessarily seem to have kind of happened that much, or it might be awaiting some further academic research. But it was something that just, um, that just struck me as uh, maybe not a missed opportunity, but perhaps something that I would have perhaps several weeks ago or a month or so ago expected maybe to have been a takeaway from this, uh, that I'm not sure entirely how that's going to sort of uh, uh, transpire. Of, uh, and I'm just wondering, I guess, what this, uh, you know, kind of retrospectively will look back on this as a point at which that uh, representative link became more abstract and more distant or perhaps a bit more closer and personalised. Uh, I'm, I'm really unsure, uh, unsure about that. What do, you, what do you think as well? Well, in the case of Brazil, I don't think this relation is, being, is getting stronger because, you know, as I said, we don't have now the contact. You know, it's very easy when we can find all of our MPs in the National Congress, in that building, in those buildings. I, I think social organizations uh, miss a lot this contact because it's where they can really make a kind of lobby about their issues. You know, when they meet parliamentarians or their uh, consultants, you know, their personal consultants in, in the buildings. And we are, what we are uh, facing now here is that the mechanism which is being used now for online voting and for 
online deliberation from the, the National Congress is not, it was a mechanism for social control before. Infoleg, it's the name of this, this app, and we could see everything that parliamentarians were doing through this app, but since it, uh, since it became a safe mechanism for the parliamentarian to vote remotely, it became a bit more difficult for people to use it. So that's an example. But I think we are not providing a, a wide uh, public engagement in this moment. And that's what we have been criticizing now, because it's like digital teams of parliament developed things for one reason, and now they are using for another reason, for parliamentarians, but they cannot yet make a conciliation between the use of parliamentarians and the use of citizens of these mechanisms, you know, so citizens cannot really be engaged in what's happening right now. So I think it, it works different from the UK, for example, because Christina just said that it's a good opportunity, it's good uh, to have online procedures because you can engage more people in these conversations. And here is completely the contrary. We cannot engage people anymore in these conversations, in these public hearings, because they do not exist for now since March. We are having plenary sessions, but the committees are not really working, except the committee for the pandemic, which is working a lot, but not really hearing from people, from social organizations. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that there might be some research in the next for a couple of years applying the same theoretical lens that perhaps people used when studying um, MPs' kind of uh, newly found use of Twitter and social media and that kind of thing as well. I think that might be an interesting area of study. But uh, uh, yeah, thank you. That was, that was really interesting. So that's it. Thank you very much, Christina. It was You're welcome. Thank you for nice, having me. Very nice to talk to you as usual and also very interesting. Good. <laughs> yes, nice to see you both. Yeah. Good to see you. Thank you very much yeah. indeed for that. It was, really, it was really interesting. Thank you. This episode had the technical support of João Senna, and the music is Feeling Good by Kevin McLean. Thank you very much for your audience.